We're coming to the end of a House for My Name series, and uh, as Matt mentioned, uh, Liam's coming to an end. We can enjoy his handiwork. Liam designed the um, graphic for this series, and he's served us really well. And as we get into um, the talk this morning, we're coming towards the end of the series. We've got three more in the House for My Name. Um, but the most important question here this morning is, anyone here a Top Gun fan? You can't be... How can, how can you be a kind of? I'm not... But you've seen... You've got to have seen the, the first one. Are you a fan? Okay, that's fine. You can... I'm happy with a yes, no, but in, in between, uh, that's, that's not so good. So, um, as I, when I was younger, Top Gun was one of my favourite films. Um, and, but we can still be friends, Grace, that's okay. Uh, um, I know that the new one's coming out, so I was really excited to go and see that. Um, I won't mention anything, but I imagine there'll be some people here still waiting to, to see that, so I won't do any spoilers this morning. But I will show uh, a clip, uh, uh, an image from the scene of the first film. Um, this has been out 36 years, so you've had plenty of chance to see it. So any spoilers, that's, that's your own fault, I'm afraid. Um, so here, if, if you've seen this film, and you're probably caught up in the moment uh, where you have Maverick and Iceman uh, um, in this euphoric moment of victory. And this has made all the sweeter because Maverick and Iceman have been dueling for uh, prominency. They've been um, at each other. They've been an intense rivalry. But, as in all good movies, they've come through adversity, through um, the death of Maverick's best friend. Again, that's a big spoiler if you haven't seen the first movie. Um, <laughs> They've come together against a common adversary. And if you've seen the film, I don't know if you can take yourself back to the first moment, first moment you saw it, you can feel those feelings of joy and elation. Hopefully, Matt, you're with me. I can see it. You're, the, you're right there, aren't you? He's in the moment. He can feel it. Now, there'll be some people in the room um, who haven't seen it. And I guess your feelings looking at this image will be slightly different. You'll be like, there's some guys. They seem fairly happy. And that's about it. Because if you don't have that backstory, if you don't have that journey, if you haven't seen the whole movie, you don't get the same power of this moment. Your main homework is to go and watch both Top Guns if you haven't seen them already. So what we've been doing over these past few months is to journey through the Old Testament so we can better grasp how God is at work in this world and with his people. Not only this, to get the real impact of what is revealed in the New Testament, we need to know the bigger story. And in our series over these past months, we've seen that the Old Testament and New Testament are very much part of the same story with the same God active throughout it all. It's one story. As we invest time in the Old Testament, it helps us to understand God better, how he acts, understanding his heart, and it helps us to know our own condition as well. We get to see God's grace, his mercy, his power, his sustaining hand. Studying the Old Testament helps us when we walk through trials like Daniel and his friends did. When we see victories like the exodus from Egypt. Or when we are waiting to see promises fulfilled like the prophet Isaiah. Just as watching the whole film helps us to see the bigger picture and fuller picture, looking at the whole story revealed in Scripture helps us and brings transformation to our hearts. And as we read, we see that Israel's story is our story. We're rebellious, 
We're in need of a saviour, but we have a God who continues to pursue us time after time. And this big picture draws out in us a deeper devotion. And examining in more detail helps us to bring the richest depth and beauty of how God is at work in our world and in our lives. So today what we're doing is drawing on what has gone before in the Old Testament to help us prepare for the next part of the story. This is a quote from Peter Lightheart, who wrote the book we're using to help us in this series. He says, And so we come to the end of the history of the Old Testament Israel, and things still don't look the way the prophets said they would look. The house of the Lord has been built, but the temple mountain hasn't risen to become chief of the mountains. Israel is back in the land, but the land doesn't quite look like the Garden of Eden. Yahweh has renewed his covenant with his people, but the law doesn't seem to be written on their hearts. Nations have confessed the God of Israel, but the knowledge of the Lord does not cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Surely something better must be coming. We're going to be digging into this truth together this morning, looking at what is better. The Old Testament brings revelation, often in shadows, but in Jesus we see things brought into clear daylight. What is promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. So building on what's come before, we're looking today at how Jesus is the greater Jeremiah and the greater Solomon. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage from Matthew's Gospel to help us. So if you want to grab one of the Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. It will also come up on the, the screen behind me as well. We're on page 983. This is Jesus with his disciples. Matthew 16 Verse 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the first question Jesus asks his followers here is, who do other people say that I am? He's met with a flurry of different answers. Some one of his John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. The answer to this question is crucial to our understanding to the big story of God revealed in the Old and New Testaments. So firstly, we're going to look at the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah and how our God weeps for us. You notice um, there in verse 14, the people at the time wondered if Jesus might be the prophet Jeremiah. Now, why would they think this? We saw when we looked at Jeremiah a few weeks ago that he is often thought of a prophet of doom and judgment. He proclaimed that destruction was coming, that Nebuchadnezzar will conquer God's people and they'll be taken into exile and the temple will be destroyed. And this view of Jesus can be at odds with the popular perception of Jesus that many people would have today. As Lightheart says, people tend to see Jesus as a kind-looking man who heals and helps. And I don't know 
today, if you're exploring the claims of Jesus, that might be your perception. He's, he's a nice man, but nothing much more. But when we look at the response of the people at the time, we see a different picture. That Jesus confronted the common assumptions of the day, and he challenged the status quo. Like Jeremiah, Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Like Jeremiah, Jesus faced opposition and persecution because of his message. Jeremiah was thrown in a cistern. Jesus was crucified outside the city gates. This isn't done to people who are being too nice. Like Jeremiah, there's an edge to Jesus. Another similarity people may have seen is that emotional response of Jesus. Jeremiah has been dubbed the weeping prophet. And this is partly because he brought a message of doom and destruction over Israel, how he was persecuted and experienced much suffering because of his prophetic message. But that message was also associated with much emotion. Jeremiah 13, verse 17 says, If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. Jesus, uh, Jeremiah weeps over the state of Israel. He weeps at their waywardness and their hardness of heart. He weeps at the injustice and oppression that's taking place. He weeps that God's people will be taken into captive, uh, taken captive into exile. We also have a weeping saviour. 19th century theologian B.B. Warfield studied the emotional life of Jesus. And he saw that the most common emotion expressed is Jesus being moved by compassion. Jesus regularly wept. He was truly a man of sorrows. I'd like us to take just a few moments to explore this further with the help of John chapter 11. And Tim Keller has drawn out four helpful points during his podcast series on questioning Christianity. And it's this situation in John chapter 11 where Jesus comes to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, Lazarus, who has just died. Jesus weeps in front of the tomb before raising Lazarus back to life. Keller shows that this encounter has four things to say about our Savior. And that first one is that we have a weeping Savior. Even though Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he wept. Why, why would you weep if you know that a victory is coming? Surely his emotions would be more like that image from the end of the Top Gun movie, with celebration and high fives all around. This is a great moment of victory. But he weeps because he feels the pain and anguish that death and, that death and destruction brings in this world. We may have many questions the, about the pain, suffering, and injustice that we see all around us. You may be walking through things right now, feeling the rawness of pain. This is an important question. Does God know? Does he care? We see in this instant that Jesus weeps. We don't have a God that's indifferent. We don't have a God who's not involved. We have a weeping Savior, and he is alongside us in our pain. Even though we don't know all the answers, we know Jesus with us. We have a weeping saviour. We also have an angry saviour. John 11 says that at that tomb, Jesus was deeply moved. Uh, that's a, a very polite translation. Um, Tim Keller says it's more like he was bellowing and snorting with anger. 
There's a real fire to the emotion here. He's angry. It, would have been, it wouldn't have been pretty, but it shows the depth of feeling because he just knows that the world wasn't created to be like this. He's mad. He's angry at the situation. And when we see suffering, injustice, and impression, we can wonder, again, does God care? And here we see that he gets mad. He gets angry. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the righteousness of God displayed. And his sense of justice is much more finely honed than ours. If we see things that go on and get angry about what's happening, how much more than our righteous God? We have a Savior who gets angry and is deeply moved. And then, thirdly, we have a risen Savior. When Jesus comes to Martha, Martha says, If you had been there any earlier, my brother would not have died. Martha says, why couldn't you have come sooner? Then we wouldn't have gone through this. My brother has now passed away. But Jesus answered with these incredible words, I am the resurrection and the life. Jeremiah and Jesus wept. They were distressed at the state of the world, but with Jesus we have something greater, so much greater. We have a risen saviour. He has defeated the power of sin and death and will return, bringing a new heaven and a new earth, a physical, tangible, future hope. This hope is sure and certain, and it's been purchased by the life of Jesus on the cross. We have a risen Savior. And then fourthly, we have a dying Savior. We see the cost to Jesus. The religious leaders heard what Jesus had done at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus knew that raising Lazarus would put himself in the crosshairs of the Pharisees. Keller says the only way to take Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself in. Not only this, it's true for us. The only way to take us out of the grave was for Jesus to put himself in. Jesus comes to us and meets us in our brokenness. Even in our mess, God comes to us. Jesus came to this earth and got involved in our suffering. He was tortured, he was beaten, he suffered in our place. Jeremiah called the people to turn from their wayward ways. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He is the only faithful one. Jeremiah was not warmly received because his message was hard to hear. The message Jesus brings is also challenging. We are sinners in need of a saviour. As John Stock notes, the gospel of the cross will never be a popular message because it humbles the pride of our intellect and character. We need help. It's hard for us to admit that. There is only one who is faithful. There is only one who brings eternal life. Jeremiah brought God's words to his people. Jesus brings God's righteousness for all who put their trust in him. Jesus is the greater Jeremiah. He weeps for us, but he has also made a way for us. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I'd love to invite you to do this. We'll have an opportunity when I finish speaking later on. Next, we turn to see how Jesus is the greater Solomon and how he wants to be with us. Going back to our passage in Matthew, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now Jesus is more direct, and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
Now, we don't know what the atmosphere would have been like then. Were the disciples all clamoring to answer Jesus like a bunch of five-year-olds when the teacher asked a question, every hand going high in the air? Or would it be more like a group of sullen 13-year-olds when the teacher asked a question, everyone trying to kind of avoid the gaze of the teacher, looking to their feet, hoping that the teacher doesn't call on them? Whatever situation it was, it's not surprising that Simon Peter was the one who made his voice heard. He is always the one that would push himself forward. And he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Again, we don't know what the situation would have been like. Was that what all the disciples were thinking? Yes, Peter, you got it right. Or were they like, Peter, careful. You're on your own here. But Jesus affirms Peter, saying this truth has been revealed to him by Father God. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, what does he mean? This is a term laden with significance. Messiah is the same word as Christ, and it means anointed one. At the time, kings were not crowned, but rather anointed with oil poured on their heads. It signified that they were chosen by God and appointed to rule. At the time of Jesus, there was the expectation for the Messiah from the line of David to come and bring the rule of God in power. The hope was that the Messiah would restore the fortunes of Israel and defeat the Roman oppression. Earlier in our series, we charted the lives of David and his son Solomon. David was anointed by Samuel and a great leader in battle, uniting the nation. Solomon, his son, knew wisdom and riches, and at that time, Israel was at the height of its power and the envy of nations. These were great kings, but also flawed. David was compromised with adultery and trying to cover it up. Solomon had 700 wives, and his heart was turned away from true devotion to the worshipping of pagan gods. Israel, at times in her history, knew godly leadership, but much more was promised. Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7 highlights this. This is a passage we're much more familiar with at Christmas, which is now just under six months away. I'm sure you'll be pleased to know. Isaiah 9 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What a picture that is. A king ruling from David's throne, bringing justice and peace. No end to his greatness and ruling power. It's into this context that we see Jesus introduced. At the start of the book of Matthew, it's shown that Jesus is from the line of David. He is the one to fulfill the promise. He is the greater Solomon, the greater son of David. He is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king, but not the kind of king that was expected. His purpose was not to kick out the Romans but to bring in the nations of the world to know the presence of God. Here we see this incredible truth that the God of the universe wants to be with us. 
If we've heard that truth a number of times, it's so easy to get familiar with it, but just think about that for a moment. The God of the universe, who holds everything in his hands, he wants to be with us. He delights in us. He knows us. One of the significant things about Solomon's reign was that he built the temple. God's desire is to dwell amongst his people. And the temple was built for this purpose. God gave very specific instructions for the building of the temple. It's his initiative. It's his specification. And when the temple was finished, God's presence came. We see this in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1 to 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Could you imagine a scene like that here on a Sunday morning? Not being able to come into this building because the glory of the Lord had filled it. People bowing down on the pavement in front saying, His good, His love endures forever. The presence of God is awesome. When we see the revelation of God, we fall face down and say that our God is good. Jesus purpose is the same as Solomon's, to provide a place for God to dwell with his people. But now this is not about a particular place or a particular time. Jesus is doing something greater. After Jesus affirms Peter, he goes on to say that on this rock, he will build his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is building a temple that is more glorious than anything Solomon built. He is building us, his church, into a house for his name. The word for church is ecclesia, and it refers to a gathering of people. It's not referring to a, a physical building like the one here, the one that's being built uh, all the road, but a community of living stones. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? God wants to dwell with us, to make his presence known in this world. God is building a house, but it's not a place. It is a people. I mean, there's something special, isn't it, about when we gather here together. And God delights in his gathered people as we join in worship, as we use gifts as the body of Christ, as we encourage each other, as we stand together in hardships. And we are a testimony of God's faithfulness to one another as we look across the room and we know how God is at work in different people's lives. We're to enjoy the presence of God and expect him to move, but the call is to go and take the presence of God with us, knowing that there will be opposition. But we can be confident because Jesus says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. No power of the enemy will be able to stand as the church advances. So gateway, we're not to be timid. Our God is for us. Our God is with us. Our God sends us to make him known to a broken world. We bring the presence of God. We want others to bow in worship and to say that God is good. And this is the ultimate purpose of mission, to draw more and more people to worship the living and true God. 
The last thing I want us to see this morning is that our God wants all of us. We've seen that Jesus is the greater Jeremiah. He calls people to repentance. He is the one who makes a way, and he is the only one who is faithful. Jesus is also the greater Solomon. He is the perfect king, building a house for his name, a new temple where the presence of God dwells with his people and goes to bring the knowledge of the Lord into all the earth. Let's return then to the question Jesus asks his disciples. Who do you say I am? Because this question has real relevance for us today and shows how God wants all of us completely. The answer to this question, who do you say I am, changes everything. Because our response to Jesus changes everything. If we believe that he is the Messiah, the true son of David, the one who rules with power and authority that is holy, mighty, worthy, if we truly believe this, then it needs to be reflected in how we live. As we noticed at the dedication of the temple, when we see him, we bow down in wonder. If Jesus is the anointed one, we don't only say to him that we'll follow you when, we, when things are only going my way or when things are going the way I want them to. Andrew Wilson, who spoke at our advanced conference last month, writes this. A few years ago, the American pastor, Alan Noble, commented that churches will only thrive in the modern world to the extent that they embrace the first line of the Heidelberg Catechism. This outstanding summary of Christian teaching, which was originally written in Germany in the 1560s, begins by asking, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is one of the most powerful paragraphs in Christian literature. And it begins that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. I am not my own. And this is countercultural. In a world where we're encouraged to live our own truth or recite the mantra of you do you, we are not our own. We are bought at a price. And in return, Jesus says we are to daily take up our cross. To save our life, we need to be willing to lay it down in surrender. So let me ask you this morning, are you all in? If we believe that Jesus is the greater Jeremiah, the greater Solomon, this needs to be reflected in our lives. This is hard, isn't it? But it's so important for us to wrestle with. This has been expressed for us recently in our adoption journey. Vic and I have been praying for years about adopting again, but knowing that the time wasn't quite right, whether it was for needs of the family or health challenges or a global pandemic getting in the way. But then a few months ago, we felt the time is now. We're sharing it with others to get some advice and felt everything was moving in the right direction. But then there was one pull on us in the other way, the desire to live a comfortable life. We felt the call, we thought the time was right, but we thought, wouldn't it be easier not to? Life is, is full enough. We have enough challenges going on. Surely we can be a bit more comfortable. But as we talked and prayed it through, we remind ourselves that Jesus hasn't come that we could have a comfortable life. 
Author Brett McCracken is so helpful on this. He's written a whole book on this subject. He says, comfortable Christianity is not going to change your life. It's not going to make a dent in the world. If we want real change in our lives, if we want to step into what God is calling us into, we need to get uncomfortable. Does Jesus promise us life to the full? Yes, he does. Can we know contentment in every situation? Yes, we can. But does following Jesus mean a comfortable life? No, it doesn't. And if we as a church together want to fulfill all that God is calling us to do, we're going to have to make uncomfortable decisions regularly. Giving to the building project, uncomfortable, especially in the current financial climate. Sharing our faith to those around us is uncomfortable. McCracken again says, the awkwardness of sharing your faith publicly is especially pronounced in a world where private belief is fine, so long as you keep it private. Doing life in community is often uncomfortable. It's a real privilege, but it can also be uncomfortable. McCracken says, true gospel community is not about convenience and comfort. It's about pushing each other forward in holiness and striving together for the kingdom. So where's God calling you to make that uncomfortable decision today? Let's decide together to go all in. Because God wants all of us. C.S. Lewis writes at the conclusion of Mere Christianity, Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Jesus gave himself fully. He could have stayed comfortable with his father but he chose to come to this earth, God made man. He chose the cross for the sake of us. And Jesus wants all of us. Jesus is the greater Jeremiah. He weeps for us and is given his life fully for us. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He wants us to know his full reign and his powerful presence everywhere that we go. Jesus wants all of us. He set the example of giving himself freely and completely. And so we return to the question Jesus is ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? I'm going to give an opportunity now if you like to say yes to Jesus. It might be for the first time, or it might be that you've said yes before, but you feel that you've slipped and want to say yes to Jesus once again. I'm just going to do a prayer, and if you can echo that in your hearts, and then later on we'd love to, to pray with you and to share with you afterwards. So let's just take a moment, let's close our eyes. And if this is you, just repeat after me. We're going to use maybe three important words. Sorry, thank you, and please. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things that I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you 
you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, we'd love to pray with you, share with you. If you've recommitted, why don't you find someone to, to pray that through as well? And just as I finish, as we set our eyes on Jesus, we can see God do amazing things in and through us. So let me encourage you to say yes to him, to go all in. And we'll finish with a response that Simon Peter gives at the end of John chapter 6. Many people were turning back from following Jesus. They found it too hard. Jesus says, you don't, you don't want to leave too, do you? But Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here today we're to know that there is no one else like our God. Where else can we go? Let's stand together. We'll pray to respond. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that there is none that can compare to you. We thank you that you are the greater Jeremiah, the greater Solomon. You are the, the great king, the one who comes to us, who meets us where we are. We thank you that you bring life to the full. And we pray now that we would live lives of surrender to you. And as we worship I pray that we would get a greater glimpse of who you are, that your spirit would be resting in this place. We know how you delight in your people and have set us apart, a people for your name. We belong to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to move in this place, move in our hearts, that we respond in praise and could be completely sold out for you. Amen.